Julie at Dogcast Radio. If you like dogs, wherever you are in the world, we're the show for you. Hello and welcome to episode 248 of Dogcast Radio, which I've just realised is 248. Who do we appreciate? Dogcast Radio. Fab cute, might edit it out later. Anyway, later on, we'll be hearing from vet Sean McCormack about new research from Tails.com about whether we're treating our dogs to an early death. We've launched the campaign, it's Love Your Dog Longer, because the data tells us if we keep our dog at an ideal body condition and weight, or if we have an overweight pet and we return them, get them back to an ideal body condition, they will live longer. And in some breeds, we're seeing six to 12 months on average of extra lifespan. Before that, we have Isabel Grock, a Canadian writer, conservation photographer, filmmaker and author of Conservation Canines, How Dogs Work for the Environment. The book highlights the human-animal bond and discusses how dogs are lending their paws and noses to fix some of the most complex environmental problems on the planet. When we say dogs are working for the environment, what kind of jobs are they doing? Julie, it's a great question. Um, Dogs today are increasingly put to work for environmental, all sorts of environmental jobs and wildlife conservation projects. Their sense of smell, which is, as you probably know, very powerful, is used to detect rare and elusive endangered species in huge areas. Uh, They're used as well to detect um, illegally obtained wildlife products like shark fins or elephant ivory. Um, They're also used to attract um, invasive species, some of them very small and that uh, a human couldn't find. And their value is that they're very quick, they're agile, they can navigate uh, vegetation that are, would be very difficult for humans to go into, and they're, they're, they're quick. And when it comes to wildlife and trying to protect wildlife, uh, given that we're in the middle of an extinction crisis, time is of the essence. We need to take action quickly. So the dogs are a way to help scientists collect information that they wouldn't be able to get otherwise. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. There's talk sometimes about the carbon footprint of dogs and, you know, the, the, the way we feed them and things like that. But from my understanding, if a team of dogs, you know, two or three dogs will do the work of sort of 10 people, won't they? Because, as you say, they can smell, they can, they're just faster at doing, they're more effective at that, that work, aren't they? They are, yes. And uh, it's a non-invasive way of collecting information about wildlife, especially when you think about sensitive, endangered wildlife, vulnerable in shrinking habitats. How how are researchers going to go about to learn about these species? And in terms of to, to be able to protect these species, you need to learn about them. You need to learn about where they are, their habitats, so you can propose effective conservation actions. So um, having the dogs is a good way to, to be on the landscape quickly in a way that's, that's non-invasive and is not uh, going to disturb the wildlife. And I would say those dogs are really well trained so they don't chase after wildlife and don't create any, any issues with, with the species they're trying to, to save. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I know, you know, when, you, when we think about dogs are teaching scientists so that they're, they're revealing to scientists more about these species and i've interviewed louise wilson in in the uk 
um well she's worked around the world but yes obviously yes, she lives in the UK. I know her work yeah absolutely yeah, she, she's amazing and she's brilliant yes. but so, you know she she's had her dogs she took her dog out on a pine martin uh mm. research um assignment and where the dog was giving her the alert that's okay there's this pine martin poo here scat um and and she was giving this alert and the scientists were saying no 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 Pine Martins wouldn't be here. This is too boggy. This is not the kind of um, environment for them. Anyway, they analysed the poop. It was Pine Martin poop. And that's just one example of how the dogs, we have these preconceptions that we go, the, the Pine Martin would be here or whatever species it is, whatever the target species is, it would or wouldn't be here. This is what we know about. And this is the truth, you know, to us. Whereas the dog doesn't go in with these biases, do they? The dog just goes in and smells the target species or doesn't and react and it's so it's there's not that bias there is there it's so true they're not biased and uh, and they allow the scientists to see what they can see i'll tell you um, a little story a few years ago when i was researching this this book i was invited to join um, a team of a dog handler team to look for the very elusive Haida Gwaii ermine. So the ermine lives, the species of ermine lives in Haida Gwaii, which are islands um, in the northern part of BC, very remote. And they, the researcher there who had hired these dogs had spent years and years trying to understand where those ermines were. They were never never seen. So he put like camera traps, sort of tried all sorts of methods, never encountered one. And he knew they were there, but he just didn't know where it were and how to find them. Mm-hmm. So we, we came across this um, group conservation canines uh, with the University of Washington. And Heath Miss, who was a dog handler, and his dog, Pips, who an Australian cattle dog, they went to Haida Gwaii, and I joined them. And just over a day, they found this scat. They were looking for scat, minuscule scat, the size of a, I don't know, a match, really. You couldn't see it yeah. in this huge old gross forest. How on earth are you going to find that, that type of scat? And so that was sort of the first time that the scientists had finally some level of information on the distribution of this animal where previously they didn't. So it's a, it is this giving them a lot of information and reliable information. And also, Julie, they, they compare because there's always, it's a relatively new method using dogs for conservation. Louise may have mentioned that, but it, it's something that has been done more now in recent years. But there's always a question, well, what about humans? How, how do you, are the dog that efficient? Can they do it? Are they accurate? And they tested human teams versus dog teams. And every single time they see the success rate from dogs is way higher yeah. than, than the humans for obvious reasons. Yeah, yeah. And yet we have this kind of, we're human, you know, this attitude of we're human, of course we're better. No, you know, we're, we're really not. <laughs> but, um, and, and it's very humbling actually how how good the dogs are. And, uh, you know, and from my understanding, they they enjoy it, don't they? Sniffing is is innately rewarding for them so it's not you know it's something they've got an enthusiasm for they enjoy it as well as being very very effective it's true and they're it really fosters their independent thinking and uh, when you think about our modern dogs our dogs that we share our lives with or some of us at least um we 
we don't necessarily encourage that that sniffing ability of our dogs. I mean, from since dogs were domesticated, they were in those working roles where they had a sense of purpose, whether they were um, herding sheep or protecting livestock uh, against predators or doing some hunting jobs. Now, in our urban lifestyles, dogs today are with us and they look up to us and uh, and they're not always allowed by us to go out and sniff. So I think what these conservation canines show us is that, you know, this is what dogs are meant for. They're meant for uh, these purposes of sniffing out and seeing the world at, the, at their level. And when they're given that ability, their power is absolutely extraordinary. So there's a lot to learn there for, for us to re- reconnect our dogs to their true sniffing nature, I suppose. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Um, saying that, what kind of dogs make a good um, conservation dog? So when it comes to detection, um, any breed can really actually quite do it. Um, there's an organization in the, in the US and others as well, but rogue detection teams is one of them. And they say they adopt dogs of any size, color and breed. What's re- And actually, most of these conservation canines have an interesting story because they actually started as unwanted pets. They are uh, dogs that usually have a lot of energy. Uh, they are obsessed with playing ball. They need a lot of exercise. And so for a person, regular person, it's it can be too much. And very sadly, a lot of these dogs end up in shelters because they, they don't make good pets. So once they're in shelters, well, they live out their lives in shelters. They don't have any chance of being adopted. But for conservation work, these special qualities that they have, high energy, playing ball, being focused, motivated to work for long hours, is it's a great match for conservation. So these yeah. conservation groups working with dogs, they go into these shelters, they adopt these dogs, whatever breed they are, and then they give them a second chance, which is, to me, um, a beautiful story of a hope and and resilience because these dogs now they're given a second chance and they're going to work to help species that often are also running out of options yeah yeah and that includes humans <laughs> you know we are we are gradually as you say we're we're living through a crisis and, and and hopefully we do live through it but you know i love the fact that it's dogs that are yeah, as you say that they've been given a second chance that are giving us a second chance at saving the world really at saving our environment um there's something beautiful about that um they are you know when you think about the fact that they're you know typically thought about our best friend or in the animal kingdom and then they're helping having a chance to help wildlife and nature so we think it's a it's to me it's an intriguing idea so in terms of your question for breeds though said any breeds is there are certain dogs that are more suitable really large dogs would have more difficulty navigating wetlands so something to 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 keep in mind However, Julie, in the book, I also talk about other types of dogs, not just the detection dogs that we've been talking about, but these are livestock guardian um, dogs. Um, And these are particular breeds of dogs that will help people coexist with predators by protecting livestock. And so when we talk about predators, we talk about wolves or bears. 
who are returning on the landscape. And these dogs are now being used to, to help with that coexistence. And I've visited a number of projects in Namibia, in France, in Portugal, where these dogs are put to use to, to help just farmers um, uh, accept the return of these predators on the landscape. And, uh, and to me, again, it's, a, it's an intriguing concept because here we are, dogs are have their ancestors, wolves are their ancestors, and they are used now to help us coexist with their ancestors, with wolves today, yeah. as we know. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's something you mentioned in the book is the, the Anatolian sheepdogs, and they're gorgeous, and they're actually sort of protecting um, farmers' livestock, aren't they? They are. They're gorgeous dogs. Yes. Yeah, and they're beautiful. impressive. They are, they have a very imposing um, posture, which how they should be. So contrary to a typical detection dog who's going to be nimble, can be any breed, those livestock um, guardian dogs, they're going to be big, uh, large heads, loud bark, and they are like that for a reason. When a wolf or a bear shows up, they have to be able to intimidate and, yes. and, and scare those predators away. So that's their function. And they have to remain very calm and they're very bonded to the animals. They're protected, the livestock. They're raised with livestock from a very young age. And to them, it's their family and they will, they will protect them at all costs. It's beautiful. Yeah. It is. It is. I think that's something we sometimes get wrong. And when you hear of these awful, awful dog attacks on children, I'm not commenting on any specific case, but some, it does occur to me that sometimes if you get it right and you ra- and I'm not saying people that have a dog attack get it wrong, but if you raise the dog with the people or with the animals it's meant to protect, you do get that bond. You know, the, the sharper breeds, your, your Rottweilers and your German Shepherds, they don't protect because they couldn't give a monkeys you know it's not they they protect because they love and that's part of their pack their family and so mm. they love them and of course they defend them it's it's what they do and i think that's we kind of misunderstand that and we think we can have these dogs with the protective nature and but not make them part of the family and they'll still understand who they're supposed to protect but it's it comes from love doesn't it Mm-hmm. It does come from love. Yes, I love what you said about part of the uh, of the pack and uh, these dogs, like the the livestock guardian dogs. They're from a young age. Um, they learn to bond with the livestock, but they also learn to be with people as well. So that if they're on a mountain and they encounter people, they're not going to be attacking people. They'll be friendly to both, but they know that to, to, to protect. They know their job. So, and that comes from early on where they introduced during their socialization to um, to livestock goats or whatever and to people as well yeah yeah so we, they we, are these um there are these mediators there are those uh, um I call them some peacemakers sometimes because they allow us to um, to coexist, to rethink our relationship with with nature and wildlife, so we can better coexist together. So now in our world, this this is what it's come down to: habitat, wild habitats are shrinking, and there for these animals and these large predators, there's not much not many options left for where to roam on those landscapes. So they are bound to encounter more humans, more livestock, more of our human footprint on this landscape where we are everywhere. So 
how can we give this animal a chance to exist? How can we live with them and share this space? And these dogs are helping us navigate those shared spaces. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I, I, another one I love is the Marema dog who uh, who lives among the penguins and, <laughs> and protect them from, from foxes. I love that. Tell me about that. That's such a... Uh, I love that story. When I came across this, I thought, what a wonderful story. So it's it's in Australia. It's Marema Sheepdogs. They're an Italian breed. And again, they're, they're job, they're bred to protect livestock, same thing. And um, in Australia, they, uh, there's a little island called Middle Island where there's a colony of little penguins. Unfortunately, a few years ago, foxes, an introduced species, have uh, discovered that they can cross at high tide, they can go to Middle Island and they can uh, attack and eat all the penguins. Mm. So they unfortunately saw these um, colony of penguins decline to just very few penguins left. And someone said, uh, I think it was a chicken farmer actually, said, well, I have Marema dog protecting my chickens um, against fox attacks and it works really well. Why don't we put this dog on the island and see if they would protect the penguins against the foxes? And then everyone thought it had never done been done before. And so the people there, the conservationists, and said, oh, that's an intriguing idea. Why, why don't we try using the same process? So for these marema dogs, typically they're introduced to the chickens they're supposed to protect very young and they, they learn to recognize their scent and uh, they bond with them. And so they've done the same thing with the penguins. So they bonded the penguins oh. and the dogs together and they put the dogs on the island with a job of, well, pr- protect these, uh, these penguins against the foxes. And you know what, Julie, it works. Mm. Since then, the uh, number of attacks have um, has really reduced drastically and the penguin number, the penguin colony it's, it's been building up again. So it's a, it's a lovely story. I love the idea of, uh, of these dogs finding new roles, protecting wildlife here. Yeah, yeah. Oh, Isabel, I love it too. I love, there's a Disney film in that. I'm sure there I is. I know, isn't it? Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. we, we used to have ducks, Indian runner ducks in the garden, and we had a, a fox attack. Um, and I was very upset. And I, I was sort of saying, can't we have a Pyrenean mountain dog that can live as you say, we could we could bring it up with the ducks, the ducklings, and we could and it could that could be its little family, and it could protect our ducks. And then my husband would say, "Yes, but as soon as it got cold, you would have the dog in the house, and it wouldn't work, would it?" And I was like, "Well, yes, yes, I probably would." <laughs> but- I'm too soft, but there you go. But I always want to do. Um, the Pyrenees dogs, I, I love them. They're oh, it's a, yeah. the, the patou. We call them patou in in France. Uh, yeah, it's, it's a French uh, breed, and I uh, was really happy to visit some of these dogs in uh, where I grew up, very close by in the southwest of France, near Toulouse, and uh, oh, they they're so beautiful. Yeah. They're gorgeous, very impressive dogs. Yeah, yeah, they're the kind of dogs that sort of look at you and go, "Don't make me come over there." You know, they don't have to even get up, do they? They're just looking. Don't make me get over there because if I come over there, you'll regret it. And you go, okay, okay. <laughs> it's just, you know, if, when they're. It's a presence. They yes. have this presence and yeah. it's enough in most cases. Yeah. 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 I, th- I can't remember whether it was the Pyrenean mountain dog, the, what did you call it? Pa- patu or patois? Patou. No, patu. Patu. Patou. 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 Yeah. Um, it, is it them that they just, their defensive strategy is they just get between you and the threat? And, and that's usually enough because the threat goes, okay, fine. <laughs> 
They do, they do, and uh, and that's what the Anatolian shepherd uh, dogs would do as well. So this is typically the strategy for for these um, uh, livestock protection dogs is that they will be placing themselves between the herd or the animals they're protecting and the threat, the the predators, and it, and it works now. Of course, you don't put one dog with lots of livestock to to protect. There, there's also they need support. All these dogs are not expected to do the job all by themselves. They need help from humans. It's very much a teamwork. So, and you're looking at having uh, an Anatolian or another breed, Marema or anything that or Pyrenees protect your your livestock for example your animals or penguins you usually have a combination of pair of two dogs or more so they their job is is made a little bit easier and you also have strategy to to help your animals as well and you guide them so it's a it's it's very much a, um, a work a collaboration between the dogs and, and the humans as well and i think often people tend to think okay yeah we'll we'll just put the dog out there and they'll do their job and we don't need to do anything that's not true the, the dogs can do wonder there's no doubt about that but they need the support then of their of their humans their yeah. human partner <laughs> yeah yeah and it's wonderful that they they will form such a team with us and and they will tell us so much if we learn to read what they're saying and it's it's amazing it's just amazing the teamwork um what i have found absolutely fascinating when i followed some of these detection dogs in those landscapes where they were looking for scat of a this and that species or elusive um, frogs or, or you name it is the actual teamwork with their handler because you know that the handlers have to read the signs of what the dogs are telling them and i've been told is that the dogs can be trained to detect anything and they can be trained very quickly they get it really they're very smart yeah. but their handlers have to, have to be trained and often takes a lot more time <laughs> to train <laughs> the humans to work with the dogs because they have to help the dog solve the the puzzle they have to learn the language they have to learn to communicate with the dogs and 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 read those signs yeah yeah and it is a complicated when you think you know the 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 smells the scents going into the dog's nose and louise was saying to me it's not just about what they're smelling what they you know the target odor it's about so many odors they have to ignore you know and then Mm. you have the, the handler um when we've said any dog can do this, that's great. And any, you know, any, any partnership could maybe do, it, but it's got to be properly trained, hasn't it? You and the dog have got to understand what you're doing. And as you say, the human, it comes naturally to the dog. We have to learn how to read the dog because for example, you have to understand, is the dog showing you, yeah, this is an active you know, response to, to yes, this is the target odor or is it a, an older odor or is it something that's, you know, similar, but not quite, you know, you really have to read what the dog is, is saying to you you're absolutely right julie and louise is right as well it's a it's a fairly specialized and skilled type of work when i talk to to these groups and uh they they share their the details or the stories of their work in the field with dogs often people with their own dogs will think oh that's spectacular i too want to contribute to this i want to be outdoors with my dog and help with conservation project and this is um very much the calls that this group gets is that I, I want to apply. I want to be part of your team. And 
in most cases, they have to tell them it's, well, it's, um, it takes a long period of training, especially for, for the handlers, because you're right, you don't want to reward the dog on a non-target order. Um, so the dogs are trained to on a specific order that they have to find, whether it's wolverine or a wolf or a cougar or any species. And then the handler will have to reward the dog based on his ability to detect the correct order. And if the handler is not able to read those signs to do this properly and be with the dog and also read the, the landscape, all these environmental variables that Luis probably has talked about, the direction of the wind. There's so many different uh, things to, to, to consider that it's uh, it's a bit more than just, you know, a walk in the park and having fun with with your dog sniffing things around. Yeah. Yeah. It fascinates me because on top of that, sometimes you're looking for a very passive indication, aren't you? If it's particularly, I'm thinking of sort of dormice or hedgehogs, you don't want the dog to be sort of overly interested in the actual target. You want the indication, here's the target, but you don't want them to sort of try and interact, do you? Yeah, absolutely. They, you, you, again, you, 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 this has to remain a non-invasive way of working with wildlife. So they, they have to be subtle. They don't. They have to to be taught not to destroy the, the samples or or scare wildlife. And especially when it comes to uh, detecting um, insects or very very delicate species or frogs. I was on a project where hmm. a dog was tasked to detect uh, really tiny frogs in a wetland, and you want to them to to alert and that's the alert or the look and say okay well this is where it is but you don't want them to to run and and run over the the species or or the sample so so it's a bit of a delicate dance and exercise to make sure that the dog is alerting without um, destroying the 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 habitat or or the species so and it's it's always fascinates me and surprised me when I see how they do this and how they what they can achieve with so little impact on the landscape and on the wildlife they're supposed to protect or learn about. It's it's truly amazing. Yeah, yeah. Especially when you think they're in quite an aroused state at that point, aren't they? Because they've got all these smells going on and the brain is really going and the adrenaline must be pumping. And oh, I found the target I wanted. But then to sort of remember, hang on, I don't then interact with it. I sort of just I just tell my more dad. They will deal with it. That's you know they, they, you've got to take your hat off to them. They they these dogs are amazing in how much they remember and process and and the control there they keep themselves in. Yeah, it's a sense of focus, a yes. true sense of, of focus of communication with their with their part human partner. And also the reward, because they know that if they find the they behave a certain way and they find the target order, for example, they will get their ball and their reward. So they will work for that. And also these dogs, sometimes they work for a very long time without finding anything. Yeah. And how how does that work with um with them becoming perhaps bored or unhappy dissatisfied because they're they're here they are in the field and when you think about endangered species it's it can be hard and so the handlers have um know that they have to keep the dogs engaged and sometimes they'll play in a game they have some test samples so they can break things apart a little bit for for the dogs and give them a reward so they can keep them engaged to work for for a long time in, in the field even though they don't actually find the what what they're looking for which, which happens and those handlers are also reading the signs about well 
thinking about the welfare of the dogs, which is absolutely paramount, making sure they hydrated, they don't exhaust themselves because those dogs are so um, energetic and motivated and and fetch obsessed that they'll they'll kill themselves to to do this work if yeah. if the handlers are not attentive. So the the handlers are that's family to them. These dogs, so they will look after them. Yeah, yeah. I was going to say because we need to stress it's a good life for the dogs. Like working dogs as a human, we sometimes think, oh, you know. That must be really a difficult life to, whether it's an assistance dog or a detection dog, whatever it is, a working dog. Oh, that must be horrible having to work. But for the dog, this is, as you say, sometimes the dogs that make bad in inverted commas, challenging pets are the dogs that make good working dogs. Because as you say, they've got more go about them and they want to do something. And most dogs want to do something. They don't want to just do nothing. That's that's boring. So a working life is actually a really, really good life for a dog, isn't it? Absolutely. You, you're right, Julie. They're, they love what they do and they're, they love having a sense of purpose. This is what, what it comes down to. They, they love to, to work and be engaged. And perhaps one of the best way to, to look at this and how healthy these dogs are and what a great lifestyle they are is how their lifespans. I tell you a story, but the reason why I started this book many years, over 10 years ago, is mm. because I was in the, in the field in a wetland in, near where I live in um, Vancouver, um, in British Columbia. And I was actually doing a short film on an endangered frog, the Oregon spotted frog. And um, the researchers had real challenges finding these frogs because they're hiding, not wanting to be seen, you know, as a frog <laughs> hiding in, a, in the wetlands. And so they spent hours and hours going through the landscape, you know, wetland, imagine something where your boots go down and it's hard to walk in. And as a human, as you do that, well, you're having an impact on the landscape by just being there, trying to look, okay, is there a frog there? No, is there a frog there? No. So when I was there trying to understand better about the, the threats faced by that frog and how researchers were going about to study them, that day they had brought in um, a dog named Ali, um, gorgeous dog, um, Australian cattle dog, to help find the frogs because they thought, well, why not use the dog's sense of uh, uh, smell there to, to help us? And I was surely amazed by the dog's enthusiasm, her, her energy and her agility. It's being able to, to walk, move on that very difficult, challenging landscape where we're all sinking with our boots. And uh, there she is. She finds that frog. So this is what really inspired me. It's like, wow, that's amazing. Look at these dogs. They're great. And, um, and so that's what inspired me going at uh, looking at uh, researching more about what these conservation canines do around the world. And fast forward, here we are now in 2021, Ali, <laughs> the name of the dog, she's retired um, with a group called Rogue Detection Teams, and she's going to be 18. Can you imagine? She wow. is doing well. She's beautiful. I mean, she's moving a little more slowly now. But she's had had a very happy, healthy working life, and she's very well loved. And and to me, that's a that's a great inspiration to yeah. to see that. So in too many in many ways, the book is dedicated to uh, to Ali and all of these working dogs. Oh, that's lovely. That's lovely. But as you say, they have the best of care. Their welfare is really looked after. It's a high priority, and also 
they have the mental stimulation that sometimes our pets lack. And all that is a great approach for them. It, it does give them that healthy life and a long life. It's, it's just excellent. I love it. The mental stimulation is a, is a really important point. I've talked to trainers since I've uh, finished a book on dog trainers about what, what do you think, um, what do you learn? What can we learn from these conservation canines? Is it transferable for, for people who have dogs who are not necessarily going to do go out there and do conservation work themselves with their pet dogs? But but is there any value for, for pet owners? And, uh, and they said to me, yes, we what is a growing field is nose work classes, sense detection, scent detection classes. It's becoming increasingly popular with people and their dogs. And this is these are the classes where the dogs learn or their owners learn to um, to use their nose to find their favorite toy of food anything really and um, everyone has said that I talked to those dog trainers said you know it's a, a great way to stimulate the, the dogs intellectually to promote their physical well-being but also their mental well-being and especially with the people who may have um, been experiencing struggles with their dogs having too much energy or being frustrated, nose work and some detection exercises and games can be a very good way to, to offer that stimulation because unfortunately a lot of dogs are spending too much time not being stimulated enough, mm. as you said. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I've just done an article on this about sort of a lot of a lot of people, maybe they have a border collie or a different breed that's high um energy and too often the answer is i'll take them to the park i'll stand in the same place i'll chuck you know use a ball chucker and i'll chuck the ball for 20 minutes and it's repetitive and it's the same thing and the dog gets overstimulated and it's that it's too much of the um anticipatory and not enough of the consumptory um instincts of the of the dog are, are used and it's just it's it's all out of balance whereas with with scent work it's a much more measured way for them to have the physical and the mental stimulation and and to and find something which they you know is is the thing they found the scent and it's much more balanced activity for them isn't it it's it's very true i think what it does is scent detection it's it really stimulates their independent thinking the dogs have to think for themselves to solve a problem and I think it satiates, satiates them in a way that exercise, exercise is good, certainly. Mm. But for these dogs who need that stimulation, sand detection can be a great way for them to, to solve a problem, to solve a puzzle. They get to not to look up to their um, person there to say, what do I do next? What do I do? They, they just have to, to go out and they're allowed to go out there and then find a, find a solution to, to a problem. And, a lot of people have said, you know, I've taken this scent detection class with my dog. And before uh, I've done that, the dog, I would have to take him to the park and do these long hikes. The dog would come back. I'd be exhausted as a person. The dog would sleep for 20 minutes. And after 20 minutes, okay, what do we do next? Yes, but with yeah. scent detection, they do something like that, that really engage their, their thinking and then they come home for after 45 minutes, even a short period of time, and they sleep for three hours <laughs> because yeah. they've been engaged mentally. <laughs> yeah, good, good for dogs, good for owners as well. <laughs> 
Well, it's also good for for us if not all of all of us might be able to go on a 20 kilometer hikes and uh, and don't have necessarily the physical stamina to provide for these high energy dogs. But with scent detection, those scent games are are accessible for for the dogs, but also for for us because we can engage in that quite easily without too much effort. Yeah, with our yeah. dogs, you can even do it inside if it's raining. So it's it's a great oh, activity. Yeah, <laughs> your your job sounds amazing because you you write about the dogs and you take photos and you make films about them and you, you're an author. You've written these books. Your your job sounds amazing because it must you know it, it's fascinating. The more you learn about dogs, the more kind of amazing you find them to be, don't you? Oh yeah, there's so much every day. I've I learn about the the dogs. I I also it really it's humbling. Because yes. we often look, um, I'm, I'm a nature lover. I mean, I, that's what I live for, I'm, uh, learning about life, wildlife, educating people about wildlife and what we can do to help the environment and save the planet. And when I'm in nature and we're in nature, we look at things. But when we think about it from the dog's point of view and how they smell and how they notice all these details, it makes you think about nature in a whole different way, not a human-centric way, but a, a way that makes you appreciate the, the details of, of the natural world. And this is what I think dogs um, allow us to do. And I think we're, if we can listen to them, is opening up that window into a world that we uh, often don't uh, pay attention to. And the dogs allow us to, to, to have that, that window into the natural world world which is absolutely wonderful so I feel yeah. very grateful for all these dogs that have um, allowed me to to see the world in a, in a different and a richer way larger way yeah yeah oh that's lovely that's lovely um it's been absolutely fascinating is there anything else that you'd like to say that you haven't we haven't um, talked about yet you know, it's uh, it's perhaps uh, uh, having dogs in a looking at the work of these conservation canines and how they help the the environment. I think can inspire us. I hope to look at dogs in our own lives with um, maybe differently, with a renewed curiosity or compassion, and rethink our relationship with, with dogs. But also rethink our way of we we live with the nat- in the natural world and how how can we coexist with predators and can how can we do our part how can we be better stewards for the natural world ourselves after all canines they those dogs do so much to help the environment what is it that we can also do to to help the environment in, in our own daily lives yeah. Definitely, definitely. Be more dog. Definitely. Yes. <laughs> okay. Where where can people find out more about you online? Thanks, Juliet. So I have a website, uh, isabelgrock.com. They can find me on Instagram on my, under my name, Isabel Grock, on Facebook and Twitter as well. And then they can uh, purchase the, the book, um, Amazon uh, UK. Uh, the book is, is available as well. Or from my publisher in Canada, uh, Orca Book Publishers, um, who will, they will happily send you the book as well to the UK. <laughs> Excellent. Thank you ever so much. It's been really, really fascinating. I, I get the feeling we, we're both just amazed by dogs and um, it's, it's lovely to sort of share that with you. It's been lovely talking and and dogs just are amazing, aren't they? They are amazing. They're totally amazing in, in so many ways in, in their ability 
to communicate with us as well. And um, yeah, I, it's um, it's it's incredible. It's really a window into into a, their world, a different world about a. Teaching us perhaps how to view animals differently, to, to rethink this relationship as uh, you know, as this uh, highly intelligent, um, emotional animals that have so much to to share with us. So I think we often tend to uh, to not see that enough. So it's a reminder of that relationship. That relationship is truly amazing and so beneficial for humans. I just hope it's always just as beneficial for dogs. Thanks to Isabel for sharing her expertise and experiences with us. We have the links she mentioned at dogcastradio.com. If you give your dog peanut butter as a treat, ensure it doesn't contain xylitol, that's X-Y-L-I-T-O-L, which is toxic for dogs. You're listening to Dogcast Radio on www.dogcastradio.com. Hello and welcome to the first Dogcast Radio news of 2022, in which we're going to bring you 10 dog news stories in six minutes. So let's get going. Our first story is a Pyrenean mountain dog. I love them huge dogs with their flowing white coats. Well, this one's got a flowing red coat. I hate these new designer breeds, which are just a transparent attempt to charge exorbitant sums of money from unsuspecting buyers. No, 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 it's not like that. This dog has been dyed red. Don't like dyeing dogs funny colours. We normally don't like dyeing dogs funny colours, but this is in a good cause, because owner Chloe has dyed Dandy red to make him less vulnerable to being stolen. Great idea. More chance of any thieves being caught red-handed, you might say. (laughs) Yes. He's also more visible and less likely to be run over by a car. And the vegan products she uses keep his coat in good condition and it makes people smile. You can find Dandy and Chloe on TikTok at Dan the Big Red Dog. You mentioned vegan dog products there and our dogs are carnivores. But have you ever thought of feeding your dog an insect-based diet? Dogs lack any yuck factor and seem very happy to eat insect protein, which is apparently a very good source of protein. There's very little waste as the whole body of the insect is used and the insects have a good quality of life and are able to live out a high proportion of their normal lifespan. It's a very green way of feeding our dogs and I don't mean the thought of eating insects will make your complexion green, but insect farming causes fewer emissions, uses less water and takes up less land. So will you be switching to insect dog food? The new year came in with a bang, as usual, in the form of fireworks let off around the world. But the whizzes and bangs cause great distress to many pets and other animals. So it's great news that drone deployment may enable the use of fewer fireworks. Already the opening ceremony of 2021's Tokyo Olympics incorporated drones. A bonfire night display in Derbyshire in the UK also employed drones. And a New Year's Eve event in Dallas, USA included drones. But... Do drones have more or less of an environmental impact than fireworks? Obviously, they require electricity to power their aerobatics and their flight may still disturb wildlife and livestock and could injure birds. It's a tough one, isn't it? I wonder what they do in Spain where pets have legally become fully members of the family. Yes, from the 5th of January this year, Spanish pets will be regarded as sentient beings and not objects. Spain joins around 31 other countries that have done the same, including the UK... The Netherlands, France, New Zealand, Sweden, and more. And it's no wonder we want our dogs to be classed as sentient when they are so vital to us in so many ways. 
But did you know a dog was recently by his owner's side as she gave birth? Charlotte Beard, who is 24, has non-epileptic seizures and has a Maltese terrier called Flump, who is trained to warn her of an impending seizure. In the months leading up to the birth, Flump was acclimatised to the maternity ward, attending every appointment and scan with Charlotte. The birth took 50 hours, so it must have been quite stressful. So thank goodness Flump was there. The baby was a boy weighing £6, 10 ounces, who is called Alfie. I like to hear of a little breed being an assistance dog like that. Yes, I think some of the hearing dogs are quite small, but come on, no time for chatting. We're only halfway through the stories, five down, five to go. On to another story, which focuses on a mum, though this time not of a newborn, but of a dog owner who gave his dog a name his mum doesn't approve of. The name in question isn't rude, is very apt for a dog, and yet she finds it embarrassing to shout in public when recalling the dog. It's Woof. The dog owner is highly amused by their dog's name and surprised by their mum's reaction. What do you think? Would you be happy shouting woof in the dog park? What if the other dogs thought you were saying something rude? What if they made fun of your accent? True. If you know of a more embarrassing or funnier name, then we'd love to hear from you. The American Kennel Club is recognising two new dog breeds, the Russian Toy and the Moody. We actually met Russian Toy Dogs at Crufts 2019 when they were recognised by the UK Kennel Club and they are adorable little dogs. Yes, as far as I'm aware, we haven't met a Moody or a Muddy, but they look very striking and were originally used on farms in Hungary. And now, a sad story. Oh dear, we haven't got very far into 2022 before we've got a sad story. No, indeed, and it's one of those roller coaster stories. Roxy, the French bulldog, started off happy in her home. Then Roxy needed vet treatments for a prolapse. And her owners couldn't afford it. So they took her to the vet to be euthanised. But the vet did not put Roxy down and handed her to the Hull Animal Welfare Trust. Who discovered Roxy is pregnant at only one year old. Wow, let's just pause and take a breath. That's a lot to take in. It is. I mean, the good news is that Roxy has now had her pups and they're all doing well in their foster home. So it's not all doom and gloom, but it is sad, isn't it? And sticking with sad news, Mark Howell an independent member for Bournemouth Christchurch and Paul Council, has suggested that medium and large dogs should be phased out. Yes, you heard right. Phased out. Because Mark claims the carbon poor print of dogs like Labradors and German Shepherds is equivalent to driving an SUV car and damages the environment. He also alleges that methane emissions from animals causes serious harm to the environment and that pets consume 20% of the world's meat and fish. He suggests we choose smaller dogs and consider sharing dogs with friends and family members to reduce the number of pets around. Well, Mark won't be very pleased to hear our final story then. I don't think Mark is a Dogcast Radio listener, to be honest. Well, no, I don't either, because we'd have made a dog lover out of him by now, I think. Our final story today is a record-breaking litter of 16 guide dog pups have been born. And they're a large breed, German Shepherd Golden Retriever Crosses. The mother is a German Shepherd and she's now bringing up her brood, which is twice the number of an average German Shepherd dog litter. And three times the average litter across all breeds. It's great news because there's always a waiting list for guide dogs. And they are cared for from the moment of their birth all the way through their life. Which is full of fulfilment and fun throughout their working life and retirement. Time for us to retire now, but only until the next Dogcast Radio News. Bye! You see, sometimes in life, the best thing for all that ails you has fur and four legs. Mark J. Asher Most dogs are food-motivated and love a tasty treat. And of course, from our point of view, giving a treat or food is an easy way to show we're pleased with our dog. 
But we know more and more dogs are becoming overweight, and it's becoming clear that that has serious consequences for them, which is highlighted by new research from Tails.com. I'm talking to Sean McCormack today. Hi, Sean. Hi, Julie. How are you doing? I'm good, thanks. Are you? Yeah, very well, very Excellent. well. Talking about my favourite topic today. Yeah, me too. What a coincidence. <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant. Um, we all love to talk about dogs, right? Absolutely, absolutely. And I, I love this research because I'll, I'll put my hands up. When I had Buddy, I had a black Labrador. And yeah. when he was younger, um, the vet would sort of be saying to me, he said, he could do with losing a little bit of weight. And I'd be going, look, he does tuck up and he does have a waist. And, you know, and they'd be going, yeah. you can't really, you can't look at, you know, the, the ribs are a bit well covered. And I'd be going, no, 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 he's fine. Because I was looking at him through love coloured spectacles, if you like, you know. <laughs> and I thought, yeah. you know, he's fine. And, you know, I think this is part of the problem that love, we mix up food with love. You know, I love you, have some food. Yeah, you know? absolutely. And, you know, let's start with 42%, this is new research from, from Tails.com, and 42%, that's two in five adult dogs in the UK, are obese. That's shocking, isn't it? It is. And actually, we think that the figure might be higher. So this is our customer research in, in our database. We've got a massive database of UK dogs, and we're starting to just scratch the surface on that now in how we can utilize that to improve the lives of dogs and their owners. Um, and 42% of dogs in our database are look to be overweight or obese. But vets actually um, estimate that over 51% of dogs in the UK are overweight. 68% of dog owners don't think their dog has a weight problem. So there's a real issue there with perception versus reality, I think. And like you said, Julie, you know, we're, we look at our dog day in, day out, and we can sometimes be in denial that they're a little bit over what they should be. Um, And as you say, food is love. You know, there's no, there's no bigger bond builder. Our dogs are never happier than when we're putting down food for them or we're giving them treats or tasty morsels. So it's a real, um, you know, powerful part of the psychology of pet ownership. I always say it's in our nature to nurture and we love to nurture our pets and that food relationship is, is a really, really powerful one. So I understand, you know, dogs are great manipulators. They've got those big brown eyes looking at us and saying, I'm going to waste away. I'm going to die if I don't get that little treat or give me a give me a little morsel I'm starving over here you know yeah yeah because again it's they're not being naughty it's in their nature to find food they're opportunistic they want the food and they know we'll give it to them they enjoy it obviously you know it's a natural behavior for them isn't it as well it is. Look, our dogs evolved from the same ancestor as, as the wolf. They're not, they're not wolves, despite what a lot of people will tell you, but they, they evolved to be scavenging opportunists. Okay. So they will eat anything. They'll eat food whenever it appears because their brain tells them food may never appear again. Yes. And it's interesting. It's interesting that you've had a, a black lab, um, buddy, because there's some genetic issues here with certain breeds as well that are more prone to gaining weight. And the Labrador is a really interesting one because actually they've found by analyzing um, the DNA and, and genetics in, in Labradors that a certain proportion of them, nearly a third of them in some populations, lack one of the genes that regulates the hunger off switch. Mm. So basically they feel hungry all the time. So they're a, they're a typical breed that is you know obsessed with food. They came out number four in the um, top overweight dogs when we just look at their body condition. So feeling their ribs, they're looking at their belly, their waist, and how much condition they have, how much fat cover they have. When we combine that with weight, they drop off the list because a lot of the smaller breeds 
have a, a larger kind of magnitude of, of excess weight. Um, and that may be differences as well, really fascinating differences in the type of owner who has a Labrador versus who has a, a, a Beagle or a, a miniature Schnauzer or a miniature Dachshund. Maybe those little dogs are more manipulative or we feel more <laughs> sorry for them. So yes. we give them more yes. treats and, and they end up being more overweight than Labradors. But certainly Labradors are, are up on the list when it comes to breeds prone to being overweight. Yeah, yeah. I was looking at that list actually where you mentioned because th- those smaller breeds, the Beagles, Border Terriers, Miniature Schnauzers, Mini Dachshunds, they're all dogs. And, and, you know, we've, we've got a small dog. I'm not, I'm not having a go at anybody. I'm not pointing fingers, but when you have a smaller dog, they can get on your lap and they can get in your chair yeah. with you. And it's, it's a kind of slightly different, you know, with a bigger dog, you reminded a bit more. This sounds silly, but you reminded a bit more that they're a dog. They're on the floor. You can't yeah. pick them up. You have to treat them like a dog. And yeah. with a smaller breed, it's much easier to slip into, Oh, your mummy's little baby have a little bit of my whatever you're eating, isn't it? It is. And, you know, we're seeing dogs in, in society change from being, you know, kind of functional animals and companions with a job to do to really their main job being companionship and being part of our family. And we did some research at Tales of Com before and released the Dog Difference Report, which mm-hmm. looked at how important dogs are for our mental well-being and our emotional health and things. And dogs have really been helping us out in the last two years, you know, and things have gone a bit awry and we've all been a bit miserable. And our dogs are providing that amazing comfort and and companionship for us um of course we want to reward them but i would say we don't always have to reward them with food Mm. we can reward them with attention and praise and interaction and more exercise and doing things that stimulate their mind and and give them physical activity that they enjoy as well Um, i think a lot of a lot of this over treating or feeding really kind of rich things or calorific things or things that they shouldn't have it may come from a place of of kind of guilt you know mm. oh i didn't give him a walk today so therefore he deserves a, a sausage you know or or a biscuit um but i think we need really need to get out of that mindset because this data this study that we've done now on kind of um how weight affects your dog's lifespan it's telling us that our dogs will live longer We've launched the campaign, it's Love Your Dog Longer, because the data tells us if we keep our dog at an ideal body condition and weight, or if we have an overweight pet and we return them, get them back to an ideal body condition, they will live longer. And in some breeds, we're seeing six to 12 months on average of extra um, lifespan. Now, that's That's a huge amount of the dog's lifespan because they live shorter lives than us. So it's the equivalent of a few years on our life, you Mm -hmm. know? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And it, it it really is important. I mean, I have to say, I did get to grips with, with Buddy's weight. And so I, he, he was never sort of fat. I would yeah. say that, wouldn't I? <laughs> but anyway. Um, <laughs> I but, believe you. <laughs> but I did get his weight down. And, and particularly when I realised I'm not going to have this dog forever, well, as his age mm. overtook mine, then I started to think, hang on, we need to do something about this. And we did gradually reduce his weight. He didn't, you know, he wasn't miserable. I didn't put him on a starvation diet or anything like that. We did more activity and I was more careful. Um, And he lived to be 15 and a half, you know, despite having cancer several times. So that's a brilliant age for a Labrador, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I'm really happy. I I think, yeah, we forget as well that, you know, as our dogs get older, they do slow down. They need less um, yeah. calories going in because they're not doing as much. And if we, you know, I, as a vet, unfortunately, the sad part of my job as a vet is 
seeing the complications that come, mm. you know, later on in life, seeing dogs that are really stiff and their mobility is affected and things. And if they were at a healthier weight, they wouldn't be in such discomfort or, or pain or, or have quality of life issues. They wouldn't have some complications of other health issues had they been at an ideal weight. So this is something that's in our control. You know, we control the, the food bowl. We control the treats. We control the, the kind of um, calories in. So I think it's something that we really need to kind of um, get behind and, and, and say it's never too late either, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, you can get your dog, whatever their age, you can get them back to a healthy weight and it will pay dividends. We all want our dogs to live forever, but the next best thing is living as long as they can. Absolutely. Now, having said that, we've said we look at our dogs and we go, they're OK. They're not in bad shape. You know, how do we assess our dogs? Our dogs are sitting there in front of us while we're listening to this. We're looking at them. How do we actually tell? Are they at a good weight or are they at a, you know, do they need to lose some weight? Because the chart, the weight charts can be quite confusing. For example, we've got a German Spitz client. She's a small German Spitz client. So she, of course yeah. she's going to come out really looking really good on the charts. She may actually be overweight you know because of the i don't think she is but i'm just saying she's a small one yes the charts could show her as being good absolutely this is a brilliant question and it's something i talk about all the time um just going by kilograms alone doesn't really tell the whole story because as you say every dog is different that's why we do tailored diets it tells our comp because we want to treat dogs as individuals um you can have a large, you know, heavy set uh, kind of show type Labrador, mm. which has a totally different body shape, a totally different weight to a working Labrador line, for example. Um, the, the thing to do really is not just to go on kilos on the scales. It's to do a thing called body condition scoring. Mm. So body condition scoring is basically a technique that any pet owner can learn. It's not difficult. Um, it just requires you to think and get hands on with your dog and observe a few key parts of their body and get get a feel for them. So the three key areas are ribs, belly and waist. So with the ribs, you want to get your hands on, you want to run your fingers from their head to their tail end over the rib cage, and you want to be able to feel the bump, bump, bump of the ribs as you go back. You shouldn't be able to see the ribs coming through the skin and coat, but you should be able to feel them very easily. There should just be a fine layer of fat covering over the ribs. If you can't feel the ribs, that's a high body condition score, you know, a four out of five or even a five out of five if you really can't feel them. The second part is the belly. Looking at your dog from the side on, you want to see a nice tummy tuck up towards the waist. So the lowest part of your dog's undercarriage will be their, their rib cage. And then the highest part should be up towards their um, their hips in between the legs. So nice little tummy tuck there. If it's hanging down or it's at the same level as their, their rib cage, then your dog is a little bit over conditioned. And finally, their waist, Looking at your dog from above, they should have a nice hourglass figure. So the ribs would be the widest point looking down on them. And then it should tuck in towards the waist and, and, and hips as well. So that's a really, really good way of scoring every month, just practicing it and saying, do you know what? Buddy is over conditioned this month. I know what happened. It was Christmas. There was a few, you know, pigs in blankets and <laughs> lots of different things flying around and occasionally, you know, snaffled up. Um, we need to actually you know, take action on that this month, either with more exercise, with less treating or with healthier treating. So it's not always about, you know, just 
overfeeding. It can be the types of things we're giving. So I would say swap out your kind of um, rich, meaty or fatty treats for things like vegetables. A lot of dogs will enjoy the crunch and the sweetness of certain vegetables like peppers, green beans or carrots. And that makes for a much healthier treat than um, giving the really fatty, calorific ones. Yeah, absolutely. My mum had a German shepherd who would beg for broccoli and cauliflower and he would, you'd be yeah. preparing vegetables. He'd be like nudging, like, excuse me, can I have a bit more? <laughs> you know? Yeah, dogs are omnivores. They're scavenging opportunistic omnivores. And the opportunity that they take and, and kind of manipulate us or train us to give them stuff is often in the kitchen when we're preparing food. Yeah, um, yeah. It's difficult not to give in to that. But um, I would say swap it out for healthier treats, swap it out for attention, training, brain training. Don't feed your, your dog from a bowl. Here's another thing, right? Food mm. enrichment. We can get our dogs really um, active and using their brain and sol- problem solving by giving them kind of a challenge to get their food, giving them puzzle feed toy- toys and feeders and actually asking them to work for their food. They really enjoy that. and It occupies their mind. It tires them out. And I always say a tired dog is a happy dog. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And that's a really important thing, actually, because, um, you know, we had a border collie and I thought to tire a border collie out, I've got to get a ball thrower. I've got to chuck the ball. I've got to bring this dog back, you know, physically worn out. You can't do it. Yeah. And, and it's not good for the dog to do it. But <laughs> no, you, absolutely. But when you, you, you mentioned getting their brain working and that's a brilliant idea because um, making them work for food is, is not cruel. They actually do love it. But just when you're on the walk and you're throwing the ball for them, because um, certain breeds obviously go to get too um, dependent on the ball throwing, you know, stop and start and do some training. Like I used to with my border collie in the end, I used to say, okay, sit down, watch the ball go, then you can go and get it. Or as I call you back, I'm going to to stop, you know, do stop a dog. I'm going to yeah. put you into a down yeah. on the way. Just mix it up and throw some brain work in there. And it just revolutionizes your, your, your training regime, doesn't it? Absolutely. I mean, we need to think about what our dog was designed to do in the first place and tap into that. So, you know, beagles came out top on the most overweight dog breed um, in our database, unfortunately. Mm. Um, Think about what a beagle needs, what a beagle wants. A beagle was designed to be a scent hound. So doing some scent work with your beagle in the house or outdoors. If it's a rainy day, it's a cold day, you're miserable, you're feeling a bit under the weather or you don't want to really go out and do exercise. That's fine. It's human nature. It's not great for your dog, but there's things that you can do indoors. So, you know, giving your dog a a toy and getting them to smell it and then hiding it somewhere in the house and making it a really exciting adventure for them to go and sniff that out. If it's a terrier, you might want to, you know, get them to kind of dig something out in the garden. They might, they might enjoy a sand pit in the garden where you can bury something and get them to dig it out. That's feeding in, tapping into your dog breed's natural behaviours and stimulating their brain in a way that they really enjoy because they were designed and bred to do that. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. And I I love that advice because I always say to people, look at what the dog was bred for, because that's what they're going to want to do. That's what they, you know, for example, with my Labrador, when we first had him, he was obsessed with picking things up and he everything had to go into his mouth and he'd pick it up and he yeah. he wouldn't he wouldn't retrieve it to you he'd run off with it but it had to go in his but mouth but he wanted you know? to grab it yeah <laughs> yes yeah yeah that's it's the it's the first thing i always advise you know new dog owners is the 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 biggest thing that you can do to set yourself up for success is choosing the right breed for your lifestyle yes. and what you enjoy yes. doing and how much time and what type of activities you can do with that dog. So really the match of what that breed wanted. I mean, you had a Border Collie. It sounds like you did amazingly well with them. Um, One of my neighbours has a Border Collie pup 
now I saw her the other day for the first time and I just thought this is a big job you know to keep a border collie occupied yes. and yes. Um, well trained and stimulated and and not have them go a little stir crazy because think about what they're designed for out working in the fields herding for hours and hours every single day yeah. that's a difficult yeah. dog to to um keep occupied and keep happy you know yeah absolutely absolutely i mean i know um his name's graham sims and i know he he worked all his working life he still has a border colleagues now but he worked as a shepherd and he's done displays with his border colleagues and he always sort of says yeah. you know i worry that you can't and I'm paraphrasing him here. Sorry, Graham. But he always says he worries that you can't replace what the, the Border Collie was bred to do with any activity, you know, any sport that you give them. It's really difficult because they were bred to do, to have lots of energy, but have lots of mental ability as well. So that on the days when the shepherd said, see those sheep over there, go and get them. And the dog had to think, you know, and Problem be a bit, solved. Mm, and yeah. 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 And you can't, it's I mean, really this- difficult. It's so difficult. There's certain breeds really that um, arguably are not really good pets, you know, yes. because they're so um, focused and so intelligent, so well designed for a certain task that it's difficult to replicate. So things like Border Collies, things like, you know, your Belgian Shepherds, yeah. um, things like Huskies, you know, designed to be pulling sleds for hours and hours and have amazing stamina. Yeah. Those are dogs that are difficult to provide for in a kind of um, home kind of um, oh. environment especially if you have busy lifestyle and things. So really, I think matching that type of dog to your type of lifestyle is, is the fundamental thing to get right um, to, to set you up for success, as I said. Um, absolutely. Couldn't agree more. I just wanted to mention some of the food that the, our dogs are apparently snacking yeah. on is amazing. Tell us about some of the, some of the, uh, the, the foods that you wouldn't associate with dogs. I mean, I was very jealous reading the results of this uh, customer survey because some of the things that people are feeding their dog, I don't eat that well. There was things like <laughs> fillet steak and caviar and lobster and sushi. I'm like, oh, wow, dogs are eating uh, better than I am. <laughs> yes. Um, but yeah, I mean, really odd things. But also, I think it just shows you know how much we love our dog. And this pl- comes from a place of care and it yes. comes from yeah. a place of, you know, the, the really amazing loving relationship we have with our pets. But um, I would just encourage encourage everyone to think about the kind of long-term harm that can be doing um and let's not focus on the negative let's focus on the positive love your dog longer you know we can extend our time with our pets and we can improve their quality of life by just being a little more careful about what we feed and how much we feed yeah and it's never too late either if your dog is overweight you know talk to your vet your vet nurses they'll give you support um, at tails.com, we can provide a bespoke diet and feeding plan and give you the exact portion your dog needs for their lifestyle and, and their weight loss. Um, so it's something that we can get under control. We hold the key to this. You know, we feed our pets. They don't feed themselves. So um, I just want to encourage pet owners to engage with this. It's a good time of year to think about it. And um, there'll be massive benefits for you as well as your pet. Yeah, absolutely. That's interesting benefits for us because I was going to say, Sean, that that's all brilliant for my dog. Have you got any tips for me? <laughs> <laughs> oh well, I'm I'm struggling with the uh, the old waistband after Christmas as well, Julie. So uh, yeah. I'll take tips as well. <laughs> I think it's get get more active and and just watch those portion sizes is the big thing, isn't it? And finish all that chocolate in the house, or else throw it out. <laughs> well, you see, I I do that. I finish all the chocolate, but then I go and buy more. I'm my own worst enemy. <laughs> well, you see, there's there's the weakness in your in your uh, strategy, Julie. <laughs> uh, try not to buy more. I try for a while at least. <laughs> I'll try. I'll say it's on vet's orders. Can't buy more.
<laughs> there you go. There you go. <laughs> oh, thanks ever so much, Sean. That's been really interesting. No worries. If people want to find out more, we've released a load of information about our data labs and things on um, tales.com blog. So they can find lots of information there for happy, healthy dogs. Yes. Yeah. And th- there are lots of resources there. You know, As you say, one of the things you can feel sometimes that you're struggling a bit with your dog because they don't come with a manual and you've got to work them out and, you know, work, work out what they were bred to do and what they want to do and what's the best way to feed them. And there's so much information out there that's maybe not the best. Whereas Tales.com gives you really genuine authoritative information, doesn't it? Yeah, we want to help support. We want to educate, but not be, you know, finger waggy or mm, not be mm. guilting people if their pet is overweight. That's not what we're about. You know, we're, we've designed a system that will help you get your dog to a healthy weight and support them with health conditions and things like that. But look, we are all dog owners and dog lovers and, and we understand the, the challenges of, of dog ownership. And we understand that that bond you know, it's really, really powerful. Our dogs are so important, never been more important than in the last couple of years. So yeah, we want to celebrate that. And ultimately, we want dogs to live longer, happier, healthier lives. That sounds like a wonderful aim. Many thanks to Sean for talking us through that research and his excellent advice on how to manage our dog's weight and reward them in ways other than food. We have a link to tales.com at dogcastradio.com. We're almost finished, but keep listening to the end because we always finish with a joke. And as you can imagine, it's tough to keep finding dog-themed, funny, family-friendly jokes. So if you know one, send it to us. That's it for now. Until next time, look after yourselves and your dogs. Thanks for listening to Dogcast Radio, available from www.dogcastradio.com. That's D-O-G-C-A-S-T radio.com. If you'd like to get in touch with us, and wherever you are in the world, we'd love to hear from you. You can do so in a variety of ways. By phone from the UK, you can contact us on 0121 288 From the US, you can contact us on our American number, which is 315-849-2022. From any other country, you'll need your international exit code and then 44121-288-0922. You can contact us on Skype with the ident DogCastRadio. That's all one word, DogCastRadio. By email, you can contact me on julie at dogcastradio.com. When contacting us by email, if you have the facilities, please record your questions or comments and send them to us as an audio file. That way we can include them directly in our programme. We can accept most formats, for example, WAV, MP3. All these methods of contacting us can be found on our website, which is www.dogcastradio.com. And as ever, the final word goes to Jenny. What's it called when a dog runs out of treats? Armadoggin. Oh, I thought you were going to say a porcalypse. Again? Are you trying to take the punchline again? This is all I have. It's a habit now, isn't it? I'm sorry. (sighs) So I'll try and do better. Sorry.